Welcome to the Design Mind Frogcast. Each episode, we go behind the scenes to meet the people designing what's next in the world of products, services, and experiences, both here at Frog and far, far outside the pond. I'm Elizabeth Wood. Today on our show, we're diving deep into the world of corporate ventures. To do this, we're listening in to a conversation with three experts in this space. That's Frog's own Ethan Mboden, VP of Design and Global Head of Ventures, Susanna Hurado, Head of Telefonica's Waira Builder, and Sohela Aufata, Managing Director of BMW iVentures in Europe. Listener note, we also filmed this conversation, so check today's show notes for a link to watch the full video. But first, let's jump in. I've just wrapped up a conversation about corporate venture building and corporate venture capital. We cover strategies and pitfalls. We cover the next economy that's emerging now. And we even touch on how to raise children in the metaverse. Hello, I'm Ethan Mboden, Global Head of Ventures at Frog. Welcome. Very excited to have you here. Been looking forward to this for a while. I would love it if you would each maybe introduce yourselves briefly and we'll get into the discussion. So I'm Susana Jurado. I'm head of Waira Builder at Telefonica. Telefonica is a large telco operator mainly in Europe and Latin America. We use different commercial brands. So maybe you have heard of O2 or Movistar or Vivo in, in Brazil. And basically, I'm part of the open innovation area, so where all our investment vehicles are located in Telefonica. And Venture Builder is in particular one of those investment vehicles, and in particular, it focuses on creating startups. Great. Thank you. Sahela. Yes, thanks for having me here. My name is Sahela Ofata, and I'm the director of platform BMW iVentures. It is a corporate venture capital arm of the BMW Group. It's a $300 million venture capital fund that invests at the intersection of mobility and sustainability. We invest in hardware and software solutions, basically all of the technology plays that are transforming our industry towards becoming a more sustainable industry. I'm in this job now for over eight, eight years and based out of Europe, our fund itself is headquartered in the Silicon Valley and we're quite active investor and ecosystem player in the mobility space and actually, before joining the automotive world, I've been part of the telco world myself. So <laughs> it's, it's a great pleasure to be here today with you. Susanna, I think it's been 10 years that you've been on the innovation side at Telefonica, but your career started long before that. And you started in telecommunications, I think, with a master's in telecommunications engineering. So this is, you're deep in this space. You must yeah. bring a lot of knowledge at this point to the work. Yeah, well, actually, I've been for 24 years at Telefonica, so that's, <laughs> that's a large amount of time, almost my whole career. Yeah, 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 almost my whole career. But actually, I've been changing roles during those years. So I would dare say I've been almost all types of roles, from leading innovation projects to launching the entrepreneurship program and running it for seven years to now this role on and moving to the open innovation area, working with academia and now this venture building and creating startups. So yeah, very, I mean, many changes during that career. So I had a lot of fun. There's, there's a lot in there that I think we'll return to in the course of this conversation, this idea of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship yeah. of sort of the inside out innovation, the outside in innovation, all those terms that are used in what we do. How did you arrive at BMW. So as mentioned before, I have spent also time in the telco space and that, that was particularly at a point in time where the telco player that I was with 
was acquiring a lot of startups. And in my case, startups are based out of Tel Aviv. And I was specifically hired for a team that started to work with these companies. And it was all about leveraging the innovation of those companies. After acquisition, I was really amazed by the speed that they had and the dedication and execution speed it was really outstanding. And it was about building the bridge between the corporate and the startup in order to make this innovation accessible. And I really loved it. And I've been ever since over 15 years, always working at the intersection of corporates and startups, always entrepreneurial focused, innovation oriented. I have seen a lot of different programs from entrepreneurship programs to open innovation programs, mm -hmm. to venture builders, incubators, and so on. I do think that the cultural context matters a lot. Maybe you could echo that, but I would assume that within Frog, you've had the privilege to work in a context where people are very open-minded, mm -hmm. very innovation-oriented, and are used to being challenged and potentially wanting to flourish through being challenged. And if you do not have an ecosystem like this, if you're maybe mm. part of a larger corporate in certain areas where people are used to do the job just like they're doing the job for so many years, it's hard to bring in innovation. So after that time in the telco space, I have been in the media space, and then joined roughly eight years ago the BMW Group to uh, run the European Venture Practice and then evolved in my role to becoming the Global Platform Director, which means that I get the fun to work with the startups that mm -hmm. we invest in. And again, being the bridge builder between the startups, the BMW Group, other industry partners. So the entire portfolio is sort of by playground, which is fantastic. And all of this always has the common threat of making innovation accessible, but also personally just being mesmerized by the power of innovation that comes through the entrepreneurial process and trying to make this accessible. Pivot slightly, but return to the sort of enthusiasm you expressed, Susanna, when you're talking about moving into the open innovation space and then into the venture building space now. What is your personal relationship to entrepreneurship or, or more broadly to risk taking? One of the things that happens is I've been working at innovation for so long that uh, working with uncertainty is, is something that, um, I mean, I have no problem with it. Mm -hmm. I had to start things from scratch, not knowing anything. I'm used to experimenting, to having some hypotheses of what could work, what could not work, and test if it works or not, and starting things from scratch and testing outside things if they work or not work in the market and so on, that in general, for me, risk-taking is basically the ability to manage uncertainty and being able to work with uncertainty because in the end you are taking risks. You don't know what's going to happen. I think the uncertainty tie-in is exactly right and really resonates for me because well, one way that that manifests within Frog, I think my colleagues would agree with this, but this is certainly the case for me, our best projects that we undertake are ones where you have a pretty high degree of certainty that we will ultimately succeed but a much higher degree of certainty that the plan that we've laid out is not the actual way that we're going to deliver the work. Especially in the, in the venture building work, you can sort of plan as much as you want, but it's, it doesn't follow a distinct process. I don't think it serves to map it to the day because it's never going to flow that way in both ways to your advantage and, and against you. So things go faster than you expect or can take longer. So the projects are really, it's a gathering of team members many of whom may know each other and already have some trust, but mm -hmm. many who do not yet. 
and then it's sort of a joint trust fall into one another's hands, into the, and into the hands of our collaborators as well, because we work very closely with our clients to do the work. And that can be scary, but it's also a thrill. And mm -hmm. once you've done it enough times, you know that the parachute does open or that the people <laughs> are there to catch you and you can enjoy that thrill of stepping into the uncertainty, but with a degree of, of preparation and support that yeah. you can feel quite confident that you'll make it out the other end. So I think the important thing is that you get used to making decisions without having 100% of certainty. Yes. You don't have all the information, but you know when you have enough information to make a decision and go ahead. And uh, yeah, you call it the parachute, but in the end you realize that uh, maybe this doesn't work, but I know I can find when I learn why it doesn't work, maybe I can find another way mm -hmm. to make it work because you have the previous experience that you can do that, right? So that's why you feel comfortable with not having a plan, a two-year plan of what's going to happen. You know how to make decisions without having all the information. And uh, well. There's a certain amount of information that you're always going to collect before you make an investment that's called due diligence. And there's a certain amount of risk mitigation and control that you're always going to try to exert. But fundamentally, startups are a high-risk asset class so you clearly enjoy that and you enjoy the, the work with the entrepreneurs. How does risk express itself in your own life? What's your relationship? Investing in startups is, is a very risky business, but it's all about managing this risk by building up a strong and large portfolio. So statistically, there will be a very high percentage of companies that will either not make it or just make it okay, therefore developing okay and not delivering a huge exit. And then there will be some shooting stars in your portfolio, which will return the entire fund. That's the same case, whether it's a corporate venture fund or any other venture fund. Yes. Then in addition, sort of from a corporate venture fund perspective, it's on one side, the financial return. We are financially incentivized and we are tasked to deliver financial returns. It's not the case with every corporate fund. Of course, there's also the strategic side where it's about tapping into the technologies, collaborating with the startups, so those strategic goals. But when it comes to a venture decision, so it pretty much depends on the stage of the fund. So in which stage is the fund invests? So mm -hmm. if it's an early stage fund, mm -hmm. you will know that there is a lot of risk. Sure. You actually do not know where the business will be going exactly. So mm -hmm. the majority of the decision is based on the potential of the business, the market conditions and the attractiveness of the market and the highest degree the readiness and the competence of the founder team. Yeah. But we are not an early stage venture fund. Uh, we are investing a bit later. So therefore, we have a lot of data that we can analyze in order to make an investment decision. And then typically, it's a standard due diligence. And then you have to see how the company is developing. Some parts of the work that we are doing with our platform activities are helping the companies to secure revenues by building up those partnerships potentially with the BMW group or other players in the market. But it's the nature of... Venture investing is taking risk and mitigating risk and managing risk and having projections. Mm -hmm. And then one thing is what you projected or what the company projected and then how it develops over time. So you're managing your portfolio actively and, you know, have to manage and see where the company is heading and whether there are developments that you can mitigate or whether you can support the company mm -hmm. in a specific way. And then it all unfolds. I mean, there's it's such a dynamic and vibrant space. The companies are not on their own in the markets that they are operating most of the time. There is competition. Uh, there's competition from other startups or from other um, potentially incumbent players in the market. So 
it's all a matter of understanding if you decide to open a corporate venture capital unit mm -hmm. that there will be companies that will not be doing well and that there will be companies that have the potential and probably will be doing exceptionally well. And it's a part of communication and communicating this to the management board, what type of asset class this is and how this industry works. You're introducing a very important point because it's not only about the return, but also when you're going to have the return investment. <laughs> and actually, that depends yeah. on the maturity. You have mentioned that you actually invest in more mature, not in early stage startups. But in our case, we have different investment vehicles. And in our case, with the venture builder, we say we are the riskiest ones because basically we create the startup. Mm -hmm. So you don't know really what's going to happen. And it's going to take between five years if you're lucky until you show up and you show some results, right? So patience is also not, is not only about return on investment, but when you're going to get it because patience for corporates is not really their best, let's say. Right. <laughs> and on top of that, if I can echo on this one, you know, you have to face the corporate reality. So the board members that are backing you for doing what you're doing will maybe not be around in three to four years also, mm -hmm. yeah. when you yeah. still haven't realized your profits yet, depending on sort of what type of business you're operating on. So it's very hard. And then there is the culture in many large organizations. So if something large, like a large innovation practice was built up in a certain way by one specific board member, once there's a new one, that person has to do it all over again and differently. And this is where the lack of patience, in my perspective, often mm -hmm. comes in. So it is critically important to build, according to the corporate venture activity, also a communication strategy. Yeah. How do you communicate internally? How do you communicate progress? How do you sell mm -hmm. wins over the time? Because there can be a lot of good stories mm -hmm. that can be taught over the time. But doing that and having a strategy in place is equally important if you're active in this space. Yeah, and using the, the language the company understands. Yes. Yeah, because good point. let's say, for example, in our case, let's say we are not going to bring revenues in several months, even years. You cannot go to the company and say, hey, we are learning a lot because they don't understand measuring as learnings. You have to speak a language the company understands that's yeah. using money or time. And you have to somehow be able to translate it to yeah. potential revenues in the future mm -hmm. and these sort of things. So you, you have to use this, uh, the language, the, the, the top management are expecting you to speak, even if it's very difficult to, for you to make the translation and explaining what's the impact you're going to create for the, for the company. So what we're talking about here is some of the challenges of meshing the gears between two fundamentally different mindsets and, and cultures. In the larger organization, necessarily, there's an emphasis on risk mitigation, to speak yeah. broadly. We don't want a recall of one of our vehicles. We need the uptime on our communications networks. You know, whatever. So there's a lot of foundational thinking structure and culture around risk aversion and risk mitigation. And on the entrepreneurial side, you have to run toward the risk because the risk is corresponding with opportunity. And then you also need to be in risk mitigation mode, obviously, but there is a comfort or even a thrill that comes with that risk and an ability to manage and navigate that uncertainty. And I think there's some fundamental rubs there that can happen. So there's an element of education that you're talking about. You're talking about communication. 
as well. Education, do they even know what to expect? There's expectation management and so on. When might I see a return on this investment? How big might that investment be? What actually are the reasonable projections that you can make at this point in time at the, you know, after the first investment in the fund? And I'm asking you, what will the fund returns be in five years, 10 years? I'll give you a gesture, but it's not going to be very meaningful. So I think that there's, there's a lot there that needs to be navigated. And I'm curious for you, Sahela, where was BMW in this process of acclimating to investments and to having their expectations correctly set and being educated on what was realistic at the time that you began at BMW iVentures? What, what was in place and, and what was that like at that point? So I joined in 2014, and at that point in time, it was a very interesting shift in the industry where disruption basically forced every player in the industry to change business models, to open up new revenue streams, to question their own business model. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of new competition for mobility players that have once been startups. So it was an interesting point in time, and the BMW Group back then had already built some own mobility businesses in that sense, similar to, to Telefonica, own ventures in this space that have been very successful. And as part of those new mobility businesses, there was also this decision made to start a venture fund. This venture fund back then was investing mainly early stage in mobility businesses. So more digital business models in that space. No hardware investments, <laughs> not very large investments, and off balance sheet investments. Mm -hmm. So there was not a separate legal entity for the venture activities. The right. venture people were part of that larger new mobility sort of ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? And at the point in time when I joined, there was the desire to sort of increase the activities in the European investment sphere and to sort of build up the team, get more active in the space, build out a reputation, be known in the industry as a great investor and sort of talk about the benefits of, you know, taking investments from BMW iVentures. And we have been at such a pivotal time around that we had the opportunity to pitch to the BMW board the benefits of spinning out the venture fund. Because if you are active investing, you are just one of many investors. So mm -hmm. you sit at a table with the entrepreneur or the entrepreneurial team, other investors, and all of the incentives need to be clearly aligned. And typically, these are financial incentives because the goal right. is to increase the value of the company and have a large exit. So it's very hard to come in with strategic mindset only, mm -hmm. right? Or with strategic mindset, which is perceived for many startups as being instable, can change mm -hmm. from one day to the other day. Or and conflicting even. Conflicting mm -hmm. and then having different, you know, execution speed. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if you are making off-balance sheet investments, you need an internal approval process. And that's what I still up to date tell everyone who wants to run a corporate venture unit, you should not have investment decisions or an investment committee, ideally, which is based on corporate decision making processes, because typically they are not steered to making super fast decisions. And no, no, startups are not the best in the world. They're not lining up and just waiting for you to invest. It's competitive. So you mm -hmm. have to be extremely fast, founder friendly, you have to have proper term. And there's generally a misconception often in the market about corporate venture units, but corporate venturing is around for such a long time. It professionalized over time so much that many corporate venture units by now are acting just as any other institutional mm -hmm. fund with the same professionality, 
with founder-friendly terms, and then with the add-on that a corporate venture can deliver. So back then, the decision was made to spin out the first proper fund, which was a $500 million venture fund investing across the intersection of mobility, industrial technology, a lot of the themes relevant to a large automotive player and an industrial player. So pretty broad. It's fantastic. We changed our offices from New York to the Silicon Valley, built mm -hmm. up a large team there. And we're super active in this space. We've made uh, fantastic investments. So we are now in a very comfortable position where we already fully invested this fund and have a lot of fantastic developments and returns and therefore can speak from a position of strength and show that we are a very successful investor. And we have just recently, a bit over a year, launched our third fund, so technically the second external fund, which is a $300 million venture fund focusing on sustainable technologies. So all of the technologies that will be part of the sustainable transformation of the industry. So the theme shifted. The way how we operate is still the same. It's fully independent, autonomous as a fund. All of the investment decisions are taken solely in the investment team. And the investment team itself, it's a mixed team of representatives that have been with BMW before. Very small percentage. And then the vast majority of the team are people from the venture world mm -hmm. that have been in venture funds before and sort of are professionals from this space. So that's a great mixture because you always need to make sure that you are still have the capability of building that bridge and making the benefits and the assets of the BMW group accessible to the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, make financially very attractive investments. And that's what we've been doing. So we're in the midst now of this fund um, and investing actively. And by now... We have managed to build, you know, a reputation in the market. People know us as a reliable investor, as a market maker and a well-known player in the mobility space. And so a couple of in-the-weeds questions there. Number one, totally in the weeds. So do you have the same sort of incentive structure as a typical VC where the partners and team are participating in carry? Yes. Okay. Do you also have the ability to invest alongside competitive companies and so on? So you can sort of invest at will? Well, we are typically, we are quite often investing with other automotive players. Yeah. So that's the very common question yeah. because these syndicates that we are building are the most powerful ones quite often. And obviously when possible and when it makes sense, we want to be the first automotive player to make an investment or leverage the technology. But if the type of business requires to work with a lot of automotive players right. to become a successful business, we as that. the investors yeah. have that duty yeah. because our job is to maximize the financial performance of our fund and of the money that's been provided by the BMW Group to make these investments. Mm -hmm. So early in the conversation, you made reference to, I think this is what sort of triggered some of this investment activity at BMW, external disruption triggering a recalibration and internal change and leading to this fund and a number of other initiatives. And I think we have some significant external disruptions happening right now. Now, so this is a gross oversimplification, so I apologize in advance, but it's helpful just upfront framing. In our view, there is a next economy that is now emerging and there are two major forces. There are a lot of others, but two major forces that are propelling this forward and causing it to shape a quite different business operating environment for the go forward. One of those we're very familiar with because it's long driven both venture capital, core venture capital, 
innovation teams and so on, which is this ongoing march and accelerating march of technology. So new technologies hit the market, that lowers barriers to entry for new competitors, it opens up new opportunities, and so on and so forth. So that constant introduction of new technologies and maturation of those technologies, that's one major force. We're familiar with that. But that now, which is already complicated and accelerating, is compounded by the climate crisis. The climate crisis has been around for a long time. We are only now really newly acknowledging in many circles the gravity of the situation, the speed scale, and significance of the changes that are already underway and what that materializes into in our daily lives already. So at that intersection, now we have a disruption that is invalidating prior business models. We're not going to be doing a whole lot of combustion engines in your vehicles. And so there's this electrification push, obviously. And then there's a whole other set of changes that are coming that are maybe less obvious to the people that are sort of hearing us discuss. And same with telecommunications. First of all, the technologies cause a shift in what that bandwidth and those, those networks are being used for in dramatic ways and the demands on them. But there's a whole new set of opportunities that are emerging and also challenges that are emerging as a result of these changes. How would you characterize this moment right now for your parent company and for your industry? What are you feeling the most? What are some of the urgencies that are, are pushing both how you think about where you need to be investing, because you're investing in the future, and how you're thinking about where you need to be building new ventures, because you need to be building them into this context. And not only as we see it today, which already feels it might be relatively extreme, but think five years further down the line when, you're, as you're saying, some of these companies you're building are reaching a greater level of maturity. What is that environment that they're maturing into and how are we preparing for that? What's happening in your industry? Maybe like, what are you seeing as the prevailing trends that your colleagues are talking about? And do you even agree with how I've sort of characterized, glossed this idea of a next economy? Actually, we used to say when we started uh, that we were becoming a digital telco, and now we are a technological company in reality. So we are also exploring a lot of technologies. So basically, we see, of course, there are a lot of challenges, but we see that uh, right now it's a huge opportunity for us. Technologies bring that. I mean, blockchain has already been there for some mm -hmm. years now. But we are now exploring Web3, Metaverse. Mm -hmm. We think Metaverse is going to change basically how the world's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Some people say that it's going to be like a revolution similar to what internet felt or the changes that it became. So for us, it's, it's a huge opportunity. And actually, that's where we're focusing on the, on the digital arena and trying to create those products and services that people are going to use in this future. That's where we're focusing. Of course, there is the other part, being sustainable and so on, that it's something that we also have to consider. And actually, our startups, the ones we have created in Wirebuilder are not in this part, but we are also looking and investing even in startups that look at this part of sustainability, like a world, sorry, a world where there's a platform that tries to promote people being eco-friendly in the digital arena, but being eco-friendly. So, I mean, that, that's something that we have to focus, but mainly we see that uh, there are a lot of challenges, but also we see huge opportunities for making uh, a world a better place, right? So for us, the future is like something we would like to be part of, participate and creating. Why not part of that future? For example, my kids are going to, <laughs> are going to live when they, they grow up. I don't know if that was the question you that were is asking. The, that, is the, that is the question. I, I went off into my own 
little reverie around my sentiments around my kids living in the metaverse, which is a very complicated topic. We'll set that aside for right now. <laughs> Say hello. How about you and, and the automotive or mobility more broadly sort of industry? What are you seeing and what pressures are you feeling? How do you um, think about this next economy? I mean, look. Just before we started today, we were talking about the last summer in Madrid, right? And yeah. how warm it was, yeah. how extremely hot the summer was. Yes. So the climate crisis now has tangible effects. All of us realize this now, Palpable. right? Yep. And like just thinking about our generation, next generation, doesn't really matter. Like if you think about the gratitude of crises that are happening right now. So we are experiencing the climate crisis. There is a war in Europe. Ahead of us, there's a huge recession. While we're speaking, we are still in a pandemic. The euro and the dollar at parity, which just seems weird to me. Yes. Yeah. And if we go on, <laughs> I, 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 no, just, yeah. and there are... Pakistan um, is underwater. You know, supply chain challenges, major supply chain challenges globally. We can't um, produce energy. There got, are, the rivers are dried up. The, the hydroelectric doesn't work me down of rivers. We the are in an I energy crisis. Yeah, yeah. So there are, this is a very unique time where and this may be often for us as human beings too much to digest mm -hmm. because so many crises on top of each other and influencing each other so the level of uncertainty is extremely high at the moment but this also comes obviously with opportunities with opportunities of technology companies that are addressing those large challenges and this is our play field which obviously It's a good environment to be in because you feel as if you are part of the solution, not being part of the problem. And I always see it from the bright side and from the perspective that the entire industry is transforming at the moment. There are so many challenges at the same time, but yet there is so much technology out there and there will be so much more use of great technology to address the problems that we have in front of us in the most creative and innovative ways that we couldn't even think of today. Mm -hmm. So maybe all of these crises and the pressure that is on all of us is good because this will ultimately lead to change. Because otherwise, you know, if you just get too comfortable in your seat and uh, in your business position and uh, in the stable business model you've built, there's always a dangerous place to be at. And I think if you take the, you know, the bigger picture here, you will see that there will be no profit without purpose in the future because of that context and companies that have a clear purpose and that deliver technology a service a product that addresses one of these challenges or many will be the ones that will have competitive edge and there's already research on that that proves that specifically when it comes to hiring this is going to be a huge mm -hmm. advantage and i <clears> think <throat> that this changes the entire investment field so we've seen this first for other asset classes when we clearly saw a pivot in a shift towards esg being the asset classes that sort of perform best and with more and more investors requiring large large asset classes to adhere to ESG criteria. And I said already years ago, five, six years ago, this is going to hit the venture asset classes as well. Of so course. there will be no profitable businesses. There will be no companies thriving in this space that don't address these challenges and somehow sort of have a sustainable business model. And this is the change that we are seeing right now. Also yeah. on the consumer mindset, we even haven't touched up on this, but also the consumer mindset completely changed. So consumers asking, so what's the purpose of the company? Yeah. What is the company doing? The responsibility yeah. of yeah. the company. You, you said that, they, that, that they, they, they have an 
they will have an edge. I, I would go a step further and say, I think it's untenable. Yeah. Even if you, and hopefully this isn't the case, but even if one doesn't have any care or thought or even belief in how we're setting ourselves up or setting up the next generations for our collective future on this planet, this is the business operating environment. And even just the regulatory shifts, or like you're saying, the consumer sentiment and so on, it will make it absolutely untenable and is already making it untenable for these businesses to be on the, on the wrong side of history. And that is a really fortunate outcome of a really desperate situation. And please, sorry, I cut you off, Susanna. No, no, no. It was just going to say that uh, we, we can already see some of the changes that are happening that are, for example, some things that uh, didn't happen. And I think the digitalization is helping with many of those challenges that you were mentioning. Because actually, probably one of the, uh, or the only thing good that the pandemic brought is understanding that you don't have to be in the same place in order to be able to work, for example, mm -hmm. in our offices. So you have seen like, for example, pollution in cities have decreased because yes. there is more people working at home. Also, people that stopped living in the city because now you have things like full remote possibilities. Mm -hmm. sure. So the cities, one of the things that is not sustainable is the growth on cities and what it means in terms not only in energy, but also think on countries like ours, for example, the, the temperatures that cities can get in the summer and so on. So people don't need to live in a city to have an opportunity. And that's also bringing a topic of equality somehow and having opportunities and you don't have to move to a city or you don't have to move to another country in order to be able to really have the, the opportunity to earn a living. So there are changes already happening and we are doing things like, for example, trainings that are being done digitally and why not? I, I know you have your concerns about the metaverse, but we are doing some trainings in mm -hmm. the metaverse that people are in different parts of the world and you are feeling like they are close to you. So you are not needing really people to have face-to-face -face and that's going to be, it's not helping mobility things. I mean, <laughs> your business maybe, yeah, but uh, th there are things changing and you mentioned next generations, they are probably not going to buy a car. They are going to use the options that you have right now or different options. So there are many things that are going to happen, but we are already seeing them. Of course, we don't have a crystal ball. There are many more things that are going to happen, but already some of the things are being addressed by technology and these companies, these uh, startups that are already out there, but already are being in the idea phase. And in five years, probably they are going to change even more. So yeah, I mean, just a quick follow up here, just from my perspective, there will always be people and goods moving around. And yeah, just like you definitely. said, right, people, some, some people move outside of the cities in the future. It will probably not matter whether it takes you an hour or two hours because you'll be sitting in an autonomous car, being able to take calls while you're approaching the city center just for the meetings that you need. Like the entire way how we live changes. And when for good or worse, the pandemic has shown that we have this incredible flexibility as a species to adapt. And mm -hmm. I think it's normal that, you know, with certain technologies, fears arise. And then it's the role of, you know, all of us that are part of the industries that are working with these technologies to explain what can be done good. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what are the benefits of these technologies to find use cases that actually serve society and make society better? And I think in the future, there will be no other businesses. Just like you said, 
the next economy businesses as you're calling them mm -hmm. will be the only businesses surviving there will be no other business we're going to take a short break when we return hear more from ethan sahila and susanna on corporate ventures hi i'm ethan imboden global head of ventures at frog a next economy is taking shape rapidly and unpredictably shifting the operating environment for businesses. Corporate venture building is a bold strategy for growth and resilience in the face of dramatic change. Download Frog's new Chief Challenges report, Venturing Forward, to find out how to equip your organization for what's next, to engage your teams to move from hypotheses to results, and to defy what's possible now to inhabit the future. Now back to our conversation on launching, building, and investing in corporate ventures. We've actually done some interesting work on the, the journey, the child's journey with the autonomous vehicle. It's, it's just very interesting to dive into and understand how different that day can be with that service. I really like where we are now. I'd like to dive deeper into how then tangibly, you know, the venture building work that you're doing or have done, it sounds like there's, there's core business work that's happening, right? you're clearly building out more and more robust, higher speed infrastructure that will support the bandwidth needs and so on of these technologies in the core business. How does, do these new circumstances that we're talking about, these new technologies, how, how are those manifesting in your thinking around the venture building activities and, and maybe the, the ideas that you're identifying to pursue and so on? How, how does that tie back? Well, I should explain a little bit that I think I mentioned it before that we have different investment vehicles and we have investment vehicles for different stages of maturity of the startups we invest in and also we depending also on the ticket on investment of investment as well of course we realized that we were missing like a piece right we were missing the opportunity of creating startups when we started actually with our venture builder the idea is we have and we have been working in Telefonica. I mean, innovating has been part of our DNA since we started. We have always been working on potential ideas, potential future products and services, but uh, some of them really don't make sense for Telefonica, or maybe there's a, a strategic change, or maybe we realize it's not, it doesn't really make sense for them to be part of our portfolio. So basically, what we realized is we were missing the piece of, okay, let's pick these things that don't make sense as part of Telefonica, but they could potentially become startups and take advantage of these opportunities that we have there in the, in the market. But also at the same time, what we are realizing is not only that only not works for what we are doing inside, there's a whole world out there of ideas and people that are approaching all these opportunities that we are mentioning. And a lot of people you can partner with as well. So Basically, what we are doing is looking for these ideas also in the academic ecosystem. Why not? We are also looking for these ideas in other venture builders. Uh, we are also looking to other corporates. Why not? Maybe Airbnb, if you turn yourselves also into a venture builder. But there are also companies, for example, we are talking to companies, corporates that are in the energy arena where we can join forces, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they are in the energy part. But combining it with the connectivity, communication, digitalization, you can even address an even bigger challenge, right? So that's what we are moving through because, yeah, return on investment is important. But in our particular case, we also want to create value for the company, bringing innovation to the company and also 
in particular in our case that we are creating these startups, these startups are not going to, if they reach that part, but they are not going to bring a value until four or five years time, right? So basically what we are trying to do there is also creating like the future businesses or the future value that is going to be coming to the company. So it's there where we're focusing as well. So for us, it's important also as well, not the return on investment, but also making sure that somehow we are going to address the business opportunities that are going to be there in the future and preparing ourselves uh, for what might happen in five years time. But here I see the difference between what you do and how you do it. So what we're doing is clear. We're investing in startups. But how we are doing it is the secret sauce because we spinned out, we are financially yeah. incentivized because we believe this is the way to be successful long term. After understanding in corporate venturing, what is all out there? Okay, I understand there are entrepreneurship focused programs, there are entrepreneurship focused external programs, open innovation, working with academia and so on. There are so many different programs. Understanding them, tick box. That's where a lot of the corporates get to. But then actually understanding how to make them successful and actually why are we doing this? Because in many cases, I see corporates that, for example, want an image effect, a positive image effect in the industry or towards customers, which is an absolute legit goal. But if you want that, go for a program. You don't need a venture fund. Why investing? Why Mm -hmm. playing and pretending to be an investor when this is not relevant to you? You're not trying to make financial attractive investments. You don't need it for the image purposes or the marketing goals, which might be attached to this very specific program. Don't go that route just because you watched a lot of Shark Tank Mm -hmm. episodes on TV, you know? So so actually, yeah, as uh, people that are working in the the open innovation area, in the corporate open innovation area, sometimes you you have to be kind of a translator and make them understand. Because imagine in a particular case, we are taking technology we have inside. We are basically creating a startup. What the people in the business unit, that is the owner of that technology wants, is as much equity as possible of the startup. And so you have to say, no, you cannot do that. Exactly. When the startup is created, most of the equity should be part of the team, the, the, the founder team should have most of it. But not only because of that, because when the first investment comes, if investors see that a corporation has more than 25% of the equity of the startup, they don't want to invest. So you basically have to be very careful how you put in place the cap table you put in place for that exactly. startup, not to compromise the future of the startup, because mm-hmm. if they are not able to raise more money, the startup dies even if the business is working. So actually we have to say, okay, in our particular case, we had to put it in as part of our investment thesis and say, We are getting maximum 20% of the equity of the startup we create. Because Mm -hmm. otherwise, kind of like the feeling or necessity of we have to own most of this startup comes to control it. Yeah, to control it completely is important. And that's something that other investors are not going to like. So the good news here is that just having had these conversations across many different relationships and clients across different industries, I think a lot have learned this lesson probably the hard way that that if the intention really is to spin out and if they actually want other investors, unless the two investors are both strategics and they both have exactly the same strategic objectives and they can really reach alignment, if you really want to open it to external VC, which as you said, with pure VC, there is one metric. <laughs> it's, it's the IRR. It's like how much, it's financial. How much money are we getting back from this? In what period of time? 
anything that is sort of pushing against that is basically devaluing effectively or adding risk to that investment. So we've seen a lot of companies learning that lesson. The net effect is there are some who are very effectively doing exactly what you said, saying, you know, we're just going to have the small piece of this. The majority just sits with the company and it will look like a standard you know, sort of post-seed company in terms of cap table makeup, and it will go on. And there are no special provisions for us. Not even, you know, a first right of refusal on any sale. It will have to compete with the market price. If somebody else wants to buy it and we want to buy it, we're just going to have to compete for it. So that's sort of the healthy route. It still does enable these companies. I think the value is, even though they're going to have to compete to buy it, they're going to be aware of what's going on. They're going to have sort of inside knowledge of how it's progressing. So they'll be in a very good position to make a purchase at the right moment. But they will also be able to bring partners in, financial partners effectively, to help them to scale a whole portfolio, as you're saying earlier, of opportunities that they're pursuing simultaneously and diversify that risk and benefit from that portfolio strategy. So even though, yes, it feels like, wait, we built this and now we have to spend all this money to buy it back. The fact is, ideally, you're building many, you have this portfolio strategy and you can understand how they're evolving, how your strategy is evolving and buy back the ones that are most relevant and then that works for this sort of in this natural way for the, the outside entrepreneurial ecosystem. So that's that's been really good to to see. So actually building on what you're seeing, one of the things that I think it's also important is bringing other financial partners is not just uh, that you are diversifying the risk, that is true, but it's also part of your validation. Sure. I mean, in our particular case, it's part of our investment thesis that we have to validate the idea. We don't create a startup unless we have co-investors. Yep. Why? Because it's not only diversifying the risk. It's also if someone else is interested in investing, it's probably because it, it is a good idea. So it's not just diversifying uh, the financial risk, but, uh, but the risk in general. <laughs> if you, yeah, it's, it's part of the validation. You're mm-hmm. validating the idea with customers, but you're also validating the ideas with the BCs as well. I mean, the, the rest of the investors. It's a and, very powerful litmus. I totally agree. The, yeah, the, the case... It gives you more information for making the decision to go ahead. Yeah, we were mentioning before, yeah, you, you are working with uncertainty if other investors also have the feeling that this looks good is somehow giving you more data to make that decision that's let's go ahead. What you're talking about, I think, is is interesting because by having multiple strategics, like a syndicate, as you said, from the industry, it doesn't send a signal of, oh, this is BMW's company and they're going to get in my way, or it's this is Porsche's company and so on. It's rather industry buy-in. That's a really good signal because these people know their business. Absolutely. And yeah. it's but it's a common fear amongst startups. But at the same time, it's also often an opportunity, say, startup in the autonomous driving space, being, you know, partnering with a group such as the BMW group early on. This is a lot of tech validation and often can attract then other financial investors. We are, we are talking now a couple of years earlier when the space was very unsecure and there were a lot of financial investors being interested in the space, but not particularly understanding the space from a technology perspective. So there are always two sides to it at the end. You talked about something super interesting, and that is the balance of freedom, right? And still a certain level of control, which most of the corporates always want to have, because Mm -hmm. at the bottom line, they have a strategic agenda and something they want to achieve with those activities. And then if you, as we are in the middle, where you are managing sort of both sides, it is critical that you always, you know, manage to communicate are we still heading towards that initial goal we have defined? Did the circumstances change and, and why? 
and sort of keeping that line of communication open. Otherwise, it's it's pretty easy. And quite often you hear in a corporate context, well, these are the crazy folks, whatever they're doing all day long, they're burning money. There's so mm -hmm. many things. Uh, sure. Fortunately, in a venturing in the investing space, it's super clear. Mm -hmm. You either perform financially well or not, and this is visible after a certain point in time. So that kills a lot of uh, these conversations. But if you are building something which is a lot more abstract to a lot of people, such as a new venture, a new business that takes a lot of time, it's pretty hard to manage this dynamic. And then also for the people involved, the team members that are then set out to launch the companies, they need their freedom to mm. operate. I liked actually something that, that I saw in the way rebuilder sort of materials, which is that you do not want to be your new venture's first customer. And I think that's a really good push on yeah. the ventures as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So actually, go find your way. You know? Yeah, actually, if if it's even our technology that comes from from us, we don't want to be the first customer first because corporations we are not the faster customer in the world. So mm -hmm. that can also be challenging for a startup. But because also once again. Having all the customers is part of validating that there is really a business out there. Yeah. We don't want them to depend only on Telefonica as a customer. We want them to show us that, yes, there is a business out there. And they are completely dependent companies. Basically, they could, why not? One of our competitors be a customer also of this, of this startup. Yeah. So the independence is absolutely key for us. But being said this, I think that also corporates, we have an advantage you mentioned before, yeah, that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of investors out there, but also at the same time, I think we have an advantage. We might not be the first customers, but we do have customers. So we can somehow, yeah, offer our customer base sure. to those startups to grow and giving them access. So actually, when we measure the, the things we measure, uh, the impact that we are creating for the company is not only return on investment we get from proceeds, exits, and so on, but we also, from the business we are creating for Telefonica through these startups that are, are also part of us, yes, we're offering their customers, and somehow we are increasing the business that we have in the company as well. You also have, and, and for example, in our case, in Builder is a multidisciplinary team where we have experts, technological, user experience, business, product, and so on. One of the things we do with our startups is giving them access to the experts we have in the company. I mentioned it before, we are more than 100,000 employees. We are a technological company. We have a lot of experts and not only technical, but marketing and so on. And one of the things that we can do is help our startups grow. We have a, a motto that is, if our startups grow, we grow. We also have infrastructures, we have platforms that can also, we can also give access. And in the end, as, as you are doing at BNB as well, yeah, we are creating somehow an ecosystem, an entrepreneurial ecosystem as well, that you can give access to other startups. You have connections with other investors, right? Mm -hmm. So you can also connect your startups with other investors. I think it's important also to notice that corporations also have an advantage compared to, let's say, just VCs, right? So, and you you should take advantage of that as well. It is extremely important to be very aware of the assets that are available. But then again, it's the how. It's so critical to make these assets accessible. So talk about that, that is a, bit. a challenge. You're asked to make to hit certain financial marks. I don't know if they hold you to. Are you benchmarked against? free and clear VCs that are not corporate venture capitalists that, uh, on your financial return or just... We have industry standard IRR targets. Okay. What are the strategic objectives? How are those laid out for you? Do you respond to 
centrally set strategy or do you push your own strategy and vision of the future and say and pitch to you know an internal strategy organization of some sort we're going to start moving in this direction and here's why how do you how do you it, return it really in depends. these other ways back to the business it depends on the investment so there could be cases where we make an investment decision and we are very certain about this investment decision and have a hypothesis on where a certain technology is going to develop and we have good reasoning for that and we share this knowledge with our corporate LP. Also, obviously, there are Chinese walls between the startup and the corporate LP, but we are part of the ecosystem, so we see the development and actions other players are taking, either in the automotive world or on the startup side. So we share this knowledge very actively, and that is super important, and making this knowledge sort of accessible in sure. a way where you have regular exchange with, in our case, the senior management board, that we're meeting very regular or the senior strategy team. So that is one point. But the other point is super tangible because in our case, actually, we want to be the first customer. If it makes sense, sort of, there is a clear goal that BMW Group wants to collaborate with the startups wherever possible. So there are other open innovation vehicles also in place that we collaborate right. with at the BMW Group. For example, pilot projects, quick pilot projects mm -hmm. can be uh, run in order to test out the technology and verify sort of the technology and then get to a point of understanding how this could be implemented. And then we're talking about very long product development cycles in the automotive industry. So the time horizon is very long, which goes well with a startup that still is in development and a technology that still needs to be developed. In many cases, initially talked about the automotive certification, it's a key requirement in order for the startup to sell in the automotive space that is a clear benefit that can come along with an investment through the venture arm of an automotive player. So there are a lot of different ways to collaborate. But if you do not have a team in place that is specifically focused on making this technology accessible or making the assets of the corporate right. accessible, it's not just going to happen. It's not just going to be some magic and then the startup gets to work with the corporate. The barriers for collaboration are too high. And then the cultures are so different. So you need to make it happen. You have all of these different innovation infrastructures within BMW and, and within Telefonica. I'm curious now how opportunities, in your case for investment, in your case for new opportunities for building new ventures, how they flow from that pretty complex organization back to you. Do you get any deal flow and insights that translate into investments or into research into specific areas? How does that connection work? So the majority of our deal flow is external deal flow, but there is some internal deal flow. And just correctly, as you have mentioned, there are some early stage vehicles at Telefonica that pilot with uh, startups and we collaborate very strongly and exchange our deal flow. So obviously it's fantastic for us if there was a pilot project already conducted mm -hmm. at the BMW Group. We have access sort right. of to the results couldn't be easier to do a good tech due diligence. Right. So this is fantastic. And then sometimes there are those rare cases where you have in a business unit already a company collaborating with a business unit or you have a specific contract uh, mm -hmm. with a company and sure. you feel like, hey, we are spending some good R&D money or the mothership is spending some mm -hmm. good R&D money with this company. Why don't we participate in the upside of their growth and make an equity investment? Yeah. So we did restructure sure. already certain deals in this way to make sort of the partnership more solid and also consult in a way internally and explain sort of how we see market opportunities arising 
And that is fantastic because that's how it should be. But we are also super data driven. So we also scrape all of the data from all of our procurement departments right. and analyze structured. Are there any companies in there that we haven't seen so far mm -hmm. and that are in our investment mandate and that have potential? So that's that happens interesting. too. So it all gets, if I understand correctly, one sort of collection point where everything gets aggregated is procurement. And so you can look at that data instead of asking yeah. this group, that group and whatever, you just look there and you can, you can scrape. Everyone knows this procurement department is the golden gate towards every corporate. Yeah. So at a certain point in time, we we're like collaborating with the procurement team. We're talking about how to exchange better and how to work with each other. And we clearly then understood, okay, the easy way to do that is to scrap this data match make it to against our database and then have some analysts in the team look is there's some further potential but these are very small fractions so i don't want to put this in the middle here but it's all about how to do this the most efficient smart way that works right. for my corporate and in our case the vast majority is our venture activity and external deal flow and it's the role of all of the investment team members to gather and collect and analyze relevant deal flow what about in the opposite direction how are you flowing information into the group well, as mentioned previously, so we have those very regular exchanges where we're actually digesting the knowledge, the things that we see in the market from a venture lens perspective mm -hmm. and sort of have a very open dialogue with the organization, the senior management team, how we see certain developments in the market. And it could certainly happen that we have a different opinion. Mm -hmm. And then it's all about breaking down why we have this opinion. And, and there lies the value in having these discussions. And then over time... You know, reality proves which business models or which technologies are sort of succeeding. So there's always sort of context to our discussions. But then again, a lot comes through the actual work with the startups and the partnerships that we facilitate. Right. And does that literally come down to, in terms of the just the information flow as opposed to the partnerships, does that literally come down to a written report or a okay. workshop on a, on a quarterly cadence or is there a, is there a real is it very structured yeah it's not it the case organic? for us because we find it uh, we have uh, th thought about this possibility a lot of corporate venture funds do it this way but the markets are changing so fast and we don't believe that this is the way to do it so we have very very often on a high frequency you mm -hmm. know um, investment briefings sort of knowledge from investment briefings that we are sharing we have an internal podcast um, also, where we speak to a broader audience. This is, this is voices from iVentures yes. into the organization. Yes. So we have an external podcast, actually, that we are also making available internally. But we also have from time to time some internal, more informal conversations where teams, for part of our teams, come together, talk about a specific topic. And we always try to make as much of our knowledge accessible to the wider organization yeah. because that is one of the critical parts of strategic value that we bring. Right. And for you, Susanna, it can be very hard to identify and source within an organization with as many departments, innovation capabilities spread out, geographies, sort of sense the opportunities, source them from within, and do your own sort of sift to figure out what would maybe be appropriate to move into your venture building sort of funnel. How does that currently work? Is there someone collective sourcing and then you sort of fork off things to the different innovation groups that sort of fit in different ways? Or is it really your team is looking for those ideas? Or are you sort of generating more of those opportunities internally to your team and validating them? What's what's the workflow there? So basically, we just say that we look for opportunities everywhere. 
So the, there are several ways. I mean, we have this core innovation organization that is the the internal innovation I was mentioning before. They are constantly checking and prototyping ideas. So that's definitely one one source. Actually, let's say the business units, the operating the operating businesses are in contact with the market. So actually, we also talk to the business units in order to understand what opportunities are out there that are not being covered by either the business itself or by a startups already out there. So there's an opportunity for creating a startup through right. Wire Builder. So that's internally, we need to have conversations and we need to explain uh, and we need to explain what we do and actually show that we have an opportunity for not only spinning out things that, that don't make sense for Telefonica, but also to create a startups that will address things that have been identified. I think we have that advantage, yeah. The business units are constantly mm -hmm. looking at the market, looking at where they, their customers are going on. Sure. What are all their competitors doing out there? And also another thing that we have is, uh, for example, we have a trends in the open innovation area. We have a, a trends team that are looking at trends constantly. How is going to be the future of work, for example? That's uh, one of the last things they were looking at. Also there, part of an innovation team is also look what's going to happen in the future. So. We also look at the trends mm -hmm. and see opportunities there, but we also have other initiatives that are working on somehow leveraging or encouraging entrepreneurship in the different locations we are at. So we look also at the ideas that our colleagues from Open Future, for example, that's another initiative that we have that basically tries to promote entrepreneurship. We also look there for opportunities or for ideas and, and, and people also, entrepreneurs also, that could potentially be part of, of WireBuilder. So I would dare say that internally we have a lot of options. So last question for you, Sahila, is, and this is a bit more abstract, is there anything that you've seen or intersected with recently that gave you some sort of perspective on the future that you found interesting and maybe brought back to your work or just altered how you're thinking about the next five to 10 years? I mean, my entire job is based on looking into the future. So that's sort of my day-to-day -day life. And when I see those most creative ways to reuse materials, for example, mm -hmm. or completely new technology that allow us to produce steel, which is CO2 neutral, I develop hope. Mm -hmm. I develop hope that we have ways as a society to tackle the challenges ahead of us. And that truly gives me a sense of purpose and gives me the energy and the motivation to, you know, just give all my best in every day in, in this job. So that's my daily bread and butter, Ethan. So Susanna, you have a trajectory in your, yes. in your organization where you have moved progressively through the innovation organization and, and out to what could be seen as one of the sort of extreme edges of it in, a, in an exciting way, in a good way, which is building new companies from the ground up. For others who might be looking to move in that direction within their organization, do you see any pathways for them that are, or, or maybe turning points in your career that might indicate to people how they could move in a more entrepreneurial direction? Okay, so if you consider what a venture builder uh, means in and, and create a startup, I think it's important that you have some experience on what it means starting from an idea Mm -hmm. until you have something that somehow you have validated and that point in when you say, hey, this could be something. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but this could be something. It's very important you have gone through that process 
of what it looks like from from zero to something that might look pivoting because the idea you have initially has nothing to do with what it's going to be in the end. And also the mindset, going through this mindset is also very important because usually, I mean, I'm an engineer. We focus usually in solutions instead of the problems. And it's very important to focus on the problem, identifying problems, identifying needs that are there because that's going to be the thing that's going to really drive to have really a business out there and be able to create this startup. So this kind of mind of focusing on the problem first, don't fall in love with the solution because mm-hmm. you probably started with the solution, but, but the problem is the important thing. And also this thing of pivoting because what you think is going to work, even if you are focusing on the problem, once you start going out there, it's not really, very few are. And I particularly don't know any startup that with the initial idea, the one that they launched in the market was the initial idea they had. So so being through that process and doing it several times is important, but also having contact with people to understand what kind of people are the right ones for these type of teams that are starting from scratch because there's nothing to do when you look at startup that is already out there that has already customers and is about to scale or is it scaling the team there you need there is is very different from the team you need at the beginning mm-hmm. um, multidisciplinary team very small team but multidisciplinary people that can they can do something technological but if they had to go out there and sell they are going to do it so identifying the people the motivation also of the people and so on. You only have it if you have gone through this several times. So all the experience I had, for example, when I was in entrepreneurship, also gave me the feeling that you need right now to say, okay, this idea looks good. It has reached a point where you you don't have 100% certainty, but you have some information to say, yeah, we are in the right path. This, mm-hmm. this could be something. But also when you work with entrepreneurs, with founders, also to find those that, yeah, this this person is capable of pivoting, this person that is focused, that really has the motivation to make this happen, really. So he or she hasn't fallen in love with the idea, is really focused on the problem, on solving the problem. And if they have to just drop to the the garbage, Mm. what they have built until now to make sure they are addressing the problem, they are going to do it. This only happens when you have gone through this several times uh, yes. and you need that experience. You, you touched on so many things that are near and dear, the multidisciplinarity, the commitment and, and focus, the grit, if you will, the focus on the customer need, the agility and the willingness to let an idea go and move on to the next in response to sort of the empirical feedback that you're getting and so on. Completely agree with all that. Now, anything that you've seen recently been thinking about that's given you a view of the future. I think it's, it's quite interesting. And I think it's true probably for all of us that we live a bit in the future because our job is to be looking at that. Is there anything that, that stands out to you that has been inspiring and influencing how you're thinking about what's coming next in ways large or small? Yeah. I mean, basically, I agree with what Sahela said. And one of the things I love about working on innovations, basically, you have a window to the future all the time. Yeah. But I think also what's important is that you can somehow contribute to that future. It's not just a window where you're looking at. It's also a window where you looked what might happen and what is happening, but also you can go back to the, your day-to-day job and say, hey, I think here there is a great opportunity. Maybe we should address it 
we should address this challenge. We shouldn't. I mean, you're looking at so many options because there are many challenges. There are many opportunities. But somehow with the decision of, okay, let's focus on this opportunity, you're somehow saying what the future is going to be like, yeah, with that decision. So it's basically working with uncertainty once again, but also being able to feel that with the decisions you're making in your day-to-day job, even if they are small ones, but what startups you're going to invest in or what startups you're going to create, but what big opportunities or what big challenges are you, you're going to address are somehow shaping also the, the future. So, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Not everybody likes that because it's, as Haile said, getting out of your comfort zone every day, basically. But I think it's important because every minimal decision you make affects really the future. I think that's a great place to wrap up. I love this idea that the work that's going on here in corporate venturing isn't just looking forward at a future through a lens. It's actually helping to define and build that future. And I'm very encouraged by the ways that you see that future and the opportunities that lie ahead for corporate venture capital and corporate venture building to really make an impact. I think that this work can have an outsized influence in laying a new path for a company that may otherwise be really challenged or just not up, end up on a, as powerful a path as the one that we can help to describe. Mm-hmm. Thank you both so very much for doing this with me and we'll keep this conversation going. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. The Design Mind Frogcast was brought to you by Frog a leading global creative consultancy that is part of Capgemini Invent. We really want to thank our guests, Ethan Mboden, Susanna Gerardo, and Sahila Alfata for sharing their expertise. And a special thanks to Stephen Strange for creating the video version of this conversation. Be sure to check today's show notes for more on our latest Chief Challenges episode, Venturing Forward. We also want to thank you, dear listener. If you like what you heard, tell your friends. Rate and review to help others find us and be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Find lots more to think about from our global frog team at frog.co slash design mind. That's frog.co. Follow frog on Twitter at at frog design and at frog underscore design on Instagram. And if you have any thoughts about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out at frog.co slash contact. Thanks for listening. Now go make your mark.